welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome, everyone, to another uh, Monday morning edition of Inside the Firm. Uh, my name is Alex Gore. I'm hosting instead of Lance Psycho. I'm here with Michael Porus. Uh, hopefully, I said that right. The Porus yeah. of Macintosh Porus, a architecture firm in Detroit, which is an interesting place to have an architecture firm and especially to do the kind of work that you're doing. I know you're all over the board, but you do some restoration. Uh, Michael, welcome to Inside the Firm. Thanks. Uh, it's great being here and thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, the first thing that I'm interested in is talking about you worked at a bunch of different Starkitects. Uh, tell us how you got those jobs, what they were like, were any of the offices different from the other, or was there a general theme? Uh, bring us back into that time. And is this the 90s? 80s. 80s. Okay. You're early, aging well. 80s, then. And, 80s and early 90s. Yeah. So what were those firms and, and what was your experience like then? Uh, well, it was, it was a number. Um, I think I worked in 10 offices before I went out on my own. Um, and part of that was I was putting myself through school and so working summers and part-time. Um, started out, uh, the first firm I worked for was here in Detroit. Uh, and it was a group of four five partners, four of whom came out of Yamasaki's office and one from IMPAs. And um, they were the project architect in the World Trade Center. And they weren't really a star architect, but they had a, a great background, like in the 60s and 70s. Um, then I went from there. Uh, after I graduated from Michigan, I moved to New Haven, Connecticut, worked for Cesar Pelli um, and, uh, for two years. And that one was, uh, I, had a, I had a professor at Michigan named Glenn Paulson, who had worked with Caesar at Saranen's office uh, and still knew him well. And, uh, and uh, another one, uh, Jonathan Crane, his father had worked with Caesar at Saranen's office. And, and my late business partner, Doug, had already moved to New Haven and was working there. So I had some, some ins. And, uh, and that kind of got me an interview and got me in the door. Um, and that was 1985. So it was coming out of the early 80s recession. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the office was about 15 people at that point. So um, I decided to go work there full time rather than going back into grad school. Um, and in the two years that I was there, it grew from 15 to 20, 15 to 70. Um, and then I, and it was, it was great. It was a lot of fun. Um, great experience. And then, um, and then I moved to LA to go to SciArc and uh, went to work. First place I worked was Frank Gehry's part-time because there were a whole bunch of us, a whole bunch of people working at SciArc's built at, at Gary's building models and, you know, just mm -hmm. translating his sketches and just doing stuff. So I worked there part-time uh, during my first year of grad school. Uh, 
And then same thing at uh, Richard Myers. I went to work there in the model shop, which was like a 5,000 square foot model shop on the Getty Museum. Wow. And a similar thing, Robert Mangurian, who ran the graduate program at SciArc, was actually running the model shop for Richard Meyer. And um, so it was, you know, it was just, they were connections. I had a lot of friends working at Gary's. I had a lot of friends, uh, well, some friends working at Myers, And, you know, I had, I had, you know, abilities from working at Caesar's office with building models. And, um, you know, we used to call it Caesar's, you know, arts and crafts because we basically built models and drew and colored, you know, coloring and building models. So it's, yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, and then uh, I, uh, my first semester, I had Tom Main at SciArc. And uh, that summer, I went to work. Um, with him, well, for him on some competitions uh, where he needed extra help. And, um, and that, you know, started that. I worked for him for two years. The rest of the time I was in graduate school, or Morphosis, him and Michael Rotundi. Um, and, you know, so again, it was like a, it was, you know, I had him, I knew him. He was, you know, it was then, uh, he needed help. He asked me to come help. And, and then, uh, and then I had, uh, then I worked with, um, well, I had Wolf Pre from call up Himmelblau, um, at SciArc, uh, the following semester. And, uh, after seven weeks, he was going back to Austria for a long time. And Tom had, uh, the, um, uh, architecture tomorrow exhibit to plan at, uh, at the Walker Art Center. And so, and he only had a $35,000 budget. So he asked me to come in and work on that, um, which, and I did. And, and he worked out with, with Michael Rotundi and, and Wolf that I would get credit for that. So I went back to Morphosis and worked the rest of that semester and um, on that Walker Art Center installation. And so, like I said, I was there for two years and then after that, uh, when I graduated from SciArc, it was into the early 90s recession. Mm -hmm. um, got laid off from Morphosis. And then after that, it was really just sort of, you know, survival. It was following. Yeah. So, um, but at that point, I'd worked for a lot of them. I, I, I did go, I worked for Frank, um, Frank Israel for a while. And he lost a bunch of work. And so, you know, got laid off from there. Then I went to Japan and worked there for four months, building a theme park. And uh, then I came back and worked at Keating Management and Rote, Lauren Rote, Richard Keating, who had come out of SOM. And I was there for a couple of years as a senior designer. Um, and then, you know, again, this was still like, early 90s so it was recession um then I left there and I went you know I bounced around a lot mostly yeah. for work and uh so and yeah that's how, that's how did you like Japan I love Japan yeah. uh and, yeah and it was a great you know after after being in school for like 10 years um you know working and in school for 10 years, um, you know, as architects, we don't realize how much dogma we learn in school. And going to Japan 
and working on a theme park um, with mostly artists and, uh, you know, Imagineering people and, um, you know, set designers and, and uh, colorists and all these different people. I was like a site architect illustrator. So, um, but working with all these non-architects sort of realized how many rules we set up for ourselves as architects. When you're working with artists, they don't have any rules. And so, you know, you start to realize how dogmatic we are and like, and it really freed me up about a lot of things that I took as, you know, gospel, like things should line up or, you know, there's the, the piano curve. I mean, they're like stupid things that, um, that when you're working with artists, they don't have these rules on themselves. They don't put them on them. And that just really freed me up. That and was, so, yeah, that, yeah. that insight right there was one of the first light bulbs I had working at Leapskin. So my boss there was Carla and I can't remember how she phrased it. It's been years ago, but she said it was something like the biggest mistake is that we don't realize that we can break all the rules that we make for ourselves. She goes, right. we make all these rules and then we're stuck in a box and then we don't break them, but we don't realize that we made the rules. So, um, and why I'm reminded of that is not only because you said it, but I was listening to Elon Musk. He, he was touring his starship factory with, uh, um, this guy that I follow. And he said, he goes, the first thing you need to do is make the requirements less dumb. And he goes, especially if the requirements were given to you by a smart person, then you need to really look into it and make the requirements less dumb. So it's like, we make our own requirements sometimes and we, you know, um, put them yeah. in, in a box, put ourselves in a box. So. Absolutely. And it, you know, it's not, and Japan is like a different world. Um, and just, you know, I spent a lot of time going and looking at traditional Japanese architecture, temples, gardens, and uh, as well as modern, you know, Takamatsu and, uh, um, and Ando was the one I really fell in love with the most, who really, his work was mostly about Japanese culture. And, um, but it just really opened my mind up to like, questioning things like there is no rule book so when someone says oh it it should be like this like well where's the rule book where does it where does it say that so yeah yeah, really opened up things for me another one too um so one of our one of our friends in school really liked Tadao Ando and would basically copy him and that happens a lot when you're young and that's fine but I feel like you've seen architecture (laughs) <laughs> you've been in this game for a lot of times. People get mad at people when they copy star architects, but they don't get as mad when they just copy what's normal architecture. I've designed a lot of buildings that have good design and good principles, but it's in a style that you would recognize. I would recognize all that. But once you kind of quote unquote steal their, like a star architect, you can't do that. And I'm not saying that that's right to do that, but to bring these ideas over and to iterate on, on some of these styles. When we iterate on the normal styles all the time, maybe shouldn't it be looked at as too bad of, uh, because it could actually be an improvement. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, there's a history of that 
going back thousands of years in architecture from, you know, Palladio and the Renaissance. I mean, you know, classic architecture was all about and still is, you know, replicating and copying. And, and you, you learn a lot from that. But where it really gets interesting is looking at the proportions and, and the different yeah. systems they use to, like, construct the stuff. And, like, you know, that's the important piece to learn from that, not necessarily copying, a, you know, Robert Stern or whatever building it's really well what are the proportion systems behind that and um and with ando um it's, it, it to me it was much more about these two parts of japanese culture um the sort of zen you know minimalism and then the sort of exuberant you know lacquer and silk and like you know just this richness that was in their culture like a thousand years ago that then the Zen and minimalism was a reaction to. And, you know, he, Japanese culture has become about that, you know, that richness, crazy, like Tokyo and Shinto, you know, like there was that. And then there's this other side of like the minimal and, and reacting to that and breaking things down to the purest. And, and that's what Ando is about. And it's, and, you know, it's, to me, it's not necessarily about copying it. It's the idea of it, you know. I, I agree. One, Better one form against the other and just, you know, like, it's, it's, anyway, it's, uh, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so after navigating through the wild uh, ups and downs that is the construction and architecture industry, <laughs> you, started, you decided to start your own firm or or were you forced into it or how did that journey begin? Um, so I got licensed in 1994. Yeah. 1994 in LA. And, um, and I, the firm I was working at at that point was uh Nadel partnership and, you know, it was a big corporate firm and I was, you know, one of like a handful in the design department. There were like five of us. And there were like 200 production people and we were just, you know, spitting out projects like in China. Like it was, it was kind of amazing and I was interested in it because it's like they turned projects out in a month that, you know, we would take two years to do it, Morphsis, you know, and, and the... 25,000 hours would go into schematic design at Morphosis where we had 60 hours over here. Yep. And they were building like more buildings in LA and the Southeast, Southwest than anyone else. And most of us architects never even heard of them, right? And, and I thought, okay, they're having a huge impact on where we live. And I went on, like, I was really curious, how are they doing this, right? So I, I worked for a couple of years and then, you know, things got slow and I got um, laid off for a short period. And, and honestly, at that point, I thought I'd, I had been offered projects, small projects in L.A., like garage additions and typical things in L.A. and um, small additions. And up to that point, I was just too busy working to take them on. And I had a sort of a fear, you know, of giving up my, my um, salary. But the reality was my mother passed away a few years before that, and I had inherited some money, not a lot. But when I stopped and looked at it, it was enough that if I started working on my own, 
I had enough that I could not make a dime and I could live for a year. Mm-hmm. You know? And worst comes to worst, I would get another project. And I really also felt like I'd worked for all these people. I was licensed. Like it wasn't, there was no one left that I really wanted to work. <laughs> yeah. to hit the wall of like, all right, I've like sucked up all everything I can. And what did I do all this for? And it was really like, you know, to go out on my own. So that's how I started. Yeah. Um, what this is a two part question. How, how was the initial phase of getting projects and, and growing and hiring? What did that look like? And then after you got established, contrast that with, now you're maybe five people in your firm, six people in your firm getting bigger projects. I feel like there's a difference between hiring and getting projects at that stage than you just in your house starting out growing. Yeah. So when I started in LA, it was just me in an apartment. So, you know, and I was getting small projects, but a small project in LA might have a I don't know, you know, $10,000 fee or whatever, you know, so, sure. so working on your own out of your apartment, like you don't necessarily need a lot of those to, you know, to survive. And so, um, and that was, you know, I think I started with two projects starting out and, um, you know, and they were, one was in a backyard edition, office edition to a house in West LA. And the other one was great house in Venice, like right near the beach, adding an addition on the back. And, you know, they were, it was, it was enough to keep me going, but, um, but it wasn't, I wasn't really satisfied with it. I didn't particularly like working alone. Um, And, you know, just, I, I wanted more than that. And, um, and so, um, I, 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 Doug McIntosh, my late business partner, was just getting projects in Detroit. He had been in New Haven for 10 years and um, got some projects in Detroit. We both grew up there. He didn't know anyone there because all our friends had moved away. So he convinced me to come help him on some projects. And then that was in the summer of, no, that was October of 1994. And by that summer, we had like five or six people working for us and had moved into an office, started out in the basement. And so then I was commuting back and forth between LA and Detroit. And then I got rid of my apartment and car and moved to Detroit permanently. Um, but there's a huge learning curve from starting out on your own and you're doing everything yourself and you kind of know, you know, it's pretty simple. Like you're, you're doing, work and you, you know you do the bills you, you, you know, you collect. It, it's very simple when it's just one uh when you start to add employees in uh it's a totally different thing because now you're dealing with a lot of other issues and um and that became a whole project in itself and and that project of managing people in an office and in taxes and you know all that stuff that I didn't learn in school and I didn't really learn it at the firms I worked with and worked in um, so it was just like designing all of that and what you find is that you know it's 
starts out with now you have a couple of people and so your overhead grows and you know so you got to keep the work coming in and then as it gets more and more it's like more overhead and you know and and um the first year we thought we were doing really well and then it turned out doug hadn't paid he was managing the money hadn't paid any of the payroll taxes (laughs) so (laughs) it's like payroll taxes what's that so I think we owed like $70,000 and it was like, Oh man, we thought, (laughs) well, um, this is, you know, that's the thing. Like you just start learning those things and it evolves. Um, and it's just been an ongoing, you know, process ever since. Yeah. We had to tell some of our people in our firm are growing and now they're not just managing their own projects they're managing people under them. So let's say a new uh, person that was a great project manager. Now you're going to manage two other people. What I had to tell them is treat the management of those two other people like a project. Meaning you have to, Monday, you have to review what they're doing, what they're doing for the week. You have to know who's communicating all that. It's equal to a project um, managing people. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, again, it's a different it's a different project and, um, and you really, you know, so there's a lot of research into like business and ways of managing people and just, you know, how do you keep people? How do you, I mean, there's just so much to it um, that honestly I've been studying for 25 years now, but I also had 10 offices to draw from. So that was the thing. I had all those experiences, good and bad, right? all different size offices, all different types of work from very high end, you know, stark text to, you know, spec stuff like, you know, all over the West or even in China. And um, so I had a lot of things to draw on. And, and one of the things I wanted to do was draw on the ones that were really the ones I enjoyed working in the most. And that was Caesar Pelleas and Morphosis. And um, both of them were teachers. Uh, there were studios where everyone working there was really a part of the work. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like you know you're doing so and so's work, which some of the others were. You're working, in, and I don't want to get into names, but you know, you're doing somebody's work. Where there was much more, everyone was involved in it. It was much more uh, interesting. So that that was something that we've tried to keep so that to make a place that people enjoy working um, you mean do you, just to clarify on that so let's say you're working on um some mid-rise building you set it up and how they set it up was oh you're just not executing x principles design and just being you know just literally taking directions and executing it's a you wanted it more as a team effort everyone is getting their input am i interpreting that correctly the difference yes. Yes, absolutely. There's different, so, you know, the, the Caesars and Morphosis were both set up that way, where it was much more the collective and the sum of all the people putting, um, you know, input into it is greater than, you know, just one person's thought. And, um, and it, you know, Caesar would, Caesar didn't necessarily sketch. It was always about the people working on it that might know much more about it. So it's like there were design crit reviews, like in school, 
And, um, you know, and there's a measure of like how much you add to it or how much you just let the team keep going. And, um, and Tom and Morphosis were very similar at that time. Um, you know, so it's very much a collective. Now, the, the interesting thing about it is at that time, and, you know, this is a long time ago, um, it was about the, the input from in the office, but the client's input and the builder's input and some of those other things were sort of blocked out, which, you know, ends up with a lot of projects that didn't get, they were over budget or, you know, whatever. Um, so I actually felt like, okay, well, if you're starting a project a prior without a preconceived idea and it's going to come from this process, well, what if you include the client in that process? And you're crazy, Michael. <laughs> right. Well, it's like, okay, we're, you know, we say we're, you know, we have no preconceived, but you know, so it was, it's like, so that's been the piece that for us has always been like, I mean, it's much more challenging, but it actually gets projects built because everyone feels authorship. Um, and I, it's, it's, it's challenging, but it's, it's far more interesting. Yeah. Um, where do you get the most of your work now? Is it real, just building off of relationship development? Um, I'll leave it open-ended. Um, some of it is relationship. I mean, a lot of it is relationships and referrals and, um, and a lot of it is just, you know, people calling us up, whether they, someone recommended them to us or they've seen our work, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, social media or our articles or, you know, who knows? It's like, I always saw it as a big funnel you know, and you're putting stuff out there mm-hmm. and, um, and, you know, through that funnel comes some these contacts and, you know, sometimes it's from, you know, it's all over the place. Sometimes it's from um, uh, subs that we've worked for with like, like contractors or subcontractors and they recommend us to someone and they call us up. Like there's, 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 I mean, sometimes it's people, I don't even know them, but they know us and they know our work and they're referring us. Um, so that's where social media and getting published and, you know, pays off um, because you never know who's going to see that stuff and are they going to save that magazine and, you know, four years from now, like they remember this thing and, you know, they call you up and um, that's, it's kind of like that. Yeah. Um, switching gears slightly, uh, you're in Detroit. Detroit's always an interesting city to me. And I think to a lot of people just because of the manufacturing boom and then bust that happened. I don't think that a lot of people have, uh, the perspective of, you know, when that happened, how that affected the city, what's happening to it now, because I think a lot of people have seen some of the pictures of just the desolate Detroit, just houses with no houses around it, abandoned buildings, um, things like that. And there seems to be sort of a revitalization happening over the past couple of years. But could you kind of give a a history of Detroit from when you got there and what was happening to the city and 
you know, where it went and, and maybe how it's recovering or where it's at now. Yes. And that's actually part of what brought me back. So in late 94, uh, when I first came back to work on a house out here in Birmingham, um, you know, we went downtown and, you know, at that point it was desolate. Like it, you know, there were 90 vacant buildings downtown. You could shoot a cannon down Woodward Avenue and nobody would know. I mean, it was just, there was no foot traffic. There was, there was just nothing. And it was, it was pretty much about as low as it could go. And it was back then, it was like last one out, turn your, turn the lights off. And, but the buildings, having been away for 15 years and been in LA and East coast, West coast and all over, like the buildings were amazing. And the growth that the city saw, like at the turn of the 20th century, with the car industry was like, Silicon Valley. And there was so much money here. It was growing. It was New York, Chicago, and Detroit. So there were the few buildings that were left um, were pretty amazing. And they were vacant. And we thought we we've been in places like and seen like Santa Monica, Old Pasadena, New Haven, like places where places where things like this had come back, like in the 80s. You know, and we thought, well, this would be really interesting to do this here um, and and actually make a difference here, as opposed to, frankly, working on projects all over the world, like, you know, and with endless budgets, like, you know, star architects, like, you know, yeah. a fee on a house and, it's, you know, millions and millions, like, yeah, if you have a, a giant fee and all the time in the world to study something, you better come up with something really amazing. But if you're trying to work in a depressed market um, to make things happen, it's much more challenging. But really the biggest thing was like to make a difference. And um, so, and part of that, it, even though I had a real modern background, but a big piece of it at the beginning was just advocacy to save the buildings and save the context of what was left um, from urban renewal. Um, and the city had, had grown in the 20th century up until 1953, um, when the 1950 master plan went into effect and all the urban renewal happened. Um, and all the freeways were built through the neighborhoods and the, all the you know hospitals and redevelopment and the Lafayette Park and the, you know, the neighborhoods were just destroyed. And that, this is in the 50s and 60s. And then by the 67 riot, it just sort of boiled over. Um, you know, and that, that, you know, so there was a, there was disinvestment in the city since the 50s and declined. So by 1994, 95, it was really down, although it's, Bell even further since. So it was pretty desolate. Um, there were a couple of bars where everyone would go, like, you know, but it just, you know, people didn't go downtown. It was scary. Uh, it was just, it, you know, it had a horrible reputation around the country. And, you know, it was in that context that we thought this is actually a good place for young architects to practice. And that that was really like what drew us there. Awesome. What, how would you describe Detroit now? 
uh, it's come a long way in 25 years. I mean, there's been billions of dollars of, of investment. Um, you know, those 90 vacant buildings are, you know, the ones that weren't torn down, which, you know, was the majority of them, luckily, um, have been renovated. There's actually new building going on, which was our goal 25 years ago. Why we wanted to save the old buildings was so we would have a context of, you know, old to build new in to, you know, be more authentic. And, um, you know, we didn't want Detroit to be Dallas or Atlanta or something where, you know, you get rid of everything and just have this sterile new city. So um, the whole goal was let's save these buildings. And then eventually the market will get to when we can build new, which really has just happened in the last 10 years. Um, so now we're building new buildings and, you know, the market just didn't support that before. It barely does now, but, um, but now it's happening. So there's a, there's a lot of housing going, a lot, a lot more development happening that, 25 years ago, when we did housing, it was with uh, community development corporations from churches. Like they, that's who was um, for profit didn't happen, wasn't in the market. And that's really changed. Gotcha. Um, what, let's see how to ask this. You, you do different project types, um, yeah. not just, uh, remodel or restoration or preservation, but that might be your favorite. What is your favorite? And if it is that, uh, maybe also touch on some of the other stuff that you do too. Well, it's, it's not necessarily my favorite. I do like adaptive reuse, um, mostly because you're dealing with this context of a building and, you know, how to work with it. Um, how to make it into something new, but maintain the character and the authenticity of it and, you know, really change it. But uh, everything we do from whether it's a building renovation, an interior building renovation, uh, a new building to an urban design, it's all in the context of, uh, in its context from a room to a neighborhood. Um, so I like all of them, honestly. We've, we've done large urban design projects, um, teamed with SOM. We did the Easter Front plan and the Greek uh, Town uh, framework plan. And those were both big RFPs that we put these teams together and, and won. And those are fascinating. Um, we won the AIA National Award for the East Riverfront. Um, and that was a lot of that was like, this riverfront that the Detroit riverfront's never been public in 300 year history of the city. And so now we have this plan that's, that's, it had started, but now it's going to be continuous from ambassador bridge all the way to Ohio. And that's huge. I mean, that's like, it's, it's public riverfront in perpetuity. That's for everyone. And that that's, that was a very, a great project that has a lot of um, benefits to the city and to people visiting. And, um, and I love that. Um, and it was all about how to make it doable 
and real so that it wasn't just a plan that doesn't get built, which Detroit's had thousands of. Um, so how do you make it affordable? How do you utilize what's left of the industrial heritage of the riverfront and allow to build into that? And um, that was great. Um, favorite, I, I, we love doing house. I mean, I, I always like doing single family, but a multifamily, um, mixed use, adaptive reuse. Housing is a need. Um, so we enjoy that and um, um, hospitality we've done a lot of restaurants and and hotels and those are great they're like the front door of the city so a lot of the restaurants and hotels we've done like people know them because they're trying to make them really about Detroit and it's like they're public and people go to them and it gives them an impression and um, so those we really like doing as well how is the housing market there? Because in Denver and Austin and different cities, you can't buy a house unless you get there, you know, a day before it's even available and put 20 K over the asking price and everything's already, you know, 50 K over it was last year. Um, is it, is the same thing happening there a little bit or is it, is it steady? No, it, that's been happening here for sure. Um, it, it, it's definitely been happening. Um, outside of the city, Detroit, it's a little, it's, 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 it's happened some, but because of COVID, it's one of those things where people have been leaving the city. Mm -hmm. So it's um, like, we've had some condo projects where they're just not selling. Um, And it's a little scary. Like, it's like unclear, like what's going to happen in some of these urban centers, but um, but it's definitely been happening. Prices definitely went up, like maybe more in the neighborhoods than than downtown because it's it's just not as busy as it was during the day. At night, it's still thriving. People are coming for you know now that it's open for, for restaurants and nightlife, and mm-hmm. it just seems like it's not there yet during the day. But yeah, it's definitely been like that. Gotcha. Um, any other topics you want to cover? Anything you want to get out? Um, I guess, you know, I mean, I think we really, we've had a lot of people who were in our office go out and form their own firms, which I really, you know, I'm happy about and proud of, proud of. And I think part of that is just, you know, the way we run our office and just having them all involved in things from meeting with clients to proposals to the whole process. And, um, and I think that's, that's very helpful. And I, it's clear like how you run your office and the experience that people get, you know, really affects like what they can do after or, you know, or gives them, um, you know, confidence to go and uh, I think you know that's helping Detroit because it's bringing up a whole other um, generation of architects, designers, which is really helping the design, you know, quality here. I think that's a great thing. I mean, something that's been going on like New York or LA or Chicago for years, um, but now we're seeing it here, and that's a good thing. Awesome. 
Well, thanks. Thanks for taking time out of your day to do this. Um, it was very interesting to me. Uh, I'll leave the end to you. If you would let people know if they are interested in your firm, where to find that, any social media, anything like that. Um, the floor is yours. So, uh, well, we have a website, Um, We're on Instagram. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on LinkedIn. Uh, I don't know what else, but, you know, certainly can be found there and followed. Um, and we welcome that. And uh, we have a job posted on our connect right now. So we're, we're looking for people to replace interns that are leaving at the end of the summer. So, um, but yeah, we welcome people who are, who want to, who are either in Detroit and want to make a difference um, or uh, coming from other places. And we've had a lot of people come from other places move back to Detroit. A lot of them were here and come back and uh, are interested. So it's uh yeah. Yeah. The, the lions are going to be on upswing. I have a feeling about this new coach, uh, MCDC motor city, Dan Campbell. Uh, I've looked at your website. You guys do some truly beautiful work. So if you are interested, I, I think when I left college, I went to New York city. I think there's a draw to go to these the bigger cities. Detroit has always been interested to, to, to me, um, especially in, in that vibe of the history of the city and the ebbs and flows of that city. I think it'd be great experience. So go check them out. Um, go look at them if, if you're interested and uh, signing off. I'm Alex Gore and Michael, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me.